Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. Welcome, beautiful listeners, to Encuentros Latinx in 2022. Do you like science fiction and fantasy? Do you want to support new and emerging Black and Latinx authors? Well, you'll be pleased to know that I have a fantasy short story slated to be published in a young adult Latinx anthology called Where Monsters Lurk and Magic Hides. This is one of three anthologies being published by Be Infinite Publishing, a Black-owned indie publisher. There's a Kickstarter running right now through January 22nd to make these books possible, and there's a wide range of donation levels. This is not only your way of pre-ordering these books, but it's also an opportunity to support marginalized writers that already face an uphill battle with the publishing industry, which is dominated by whiteness and all sorts of other gatekeeping. Find Be Infinite Publishing on Instagram and Twitter to learn more about this campaign, and thank you for any donation or spreading of the word that you do. You will be blessed to know that the holidays are not over here at Encuentros Latinx. My guest, Lisbeth Melendez Rivera, tells us all about the months-long winter holidays she remembers celebrating in Puerto Rico. Then we get into one of the most nuanced and in-depth discussions of the term Latinx that I've had the pleasure of having on this show. All of this and so much more awaits you, so let's get right into this Encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Absolutely. My name is Lisbeth Melendez Rivera. I use she or ella in, Sp- in Spanish, the equivalent of they in English. Mm. Awesome. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? Uh, we are originally, I am originally from Puerto Rico, uh, probably going back about five generations. And prior to that, the Mediterranean Sea Mostly we are Moors, mm. Turkey and so on, um, Basque, and then mm. um, the eastern, I'm sorry, the western coast of Africa as well as indigenous Puerto Rican. Oh. You got a, you got pretty far back there. That's awesome. We keep pretty good um, records of our genealogy. That's fantastic because I feel like that's hard for a lot of people to do. I think particularly in Puerto Rico, which is, you know, it's very, very hard to do because we've lost a lot of uh, the ability to do that since we, by default, call ourselves a triad of, of you know, genetic material, which is mm-hmm. why you play like genetic lottery when you have children. And um, it just so happened that both sides of my family kept very well, very good records as to where we came from. And so once you have a beginning, you're able to delve further back. And my, mm-hmm. on my dad's side of the family, we've been around since the 1400s. Wow. So what is a good memory that you have about Puerto Rico and this family and this history that you have that's so rich? Oh, God. Um, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico. 
Um, and so, and I go, even after I came to this country 37 years ago, I go home often, at least twice a year. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, obviously the lull that everybody has suffered through the pandemic was this two year period where I didn't go home. And so the question around like good or memorable moments, it depends on the subject, right? I mean, like, I love La Noche de San Juan. Like that, you know, June 23rd, 24th, that idea of celebrating the patron saint of Puerto Rico at the beach, you know, the walking into the ocean backwards, uh, cleansing yourself, the mixture of traditions that are so ingrained in our everyday lives. Like, you know, you will make arroz con gandules and you will make, Mm -hmm. you know, um, roasted pork. Uh, you will make plantains and all of those come from different parts of our diasporic, you know, ancestry. And so when you bring them all together, cooking with my grandparents, um, mm-hmm. spending time raking coffee on the in the roof of my grandfather's house, we grew our own coffee. I, you know, I didn't drink commercial coffee until I came to this country. So and then I came to this country. I was like, I'm sorry, this is not coffee. I don't know what this is, but. <laughs> So that's just all of those, you know, New Year's Eve, right after midnight, my uncle. There's a very famous poem called um, uh, La Balada del Bohemio, which, you know, my my great uncle used to recite every New Year's Eve in an absolute drunken stupor. <laughs> but it was one of those things that to this day you miss, right? It's like midnight happens and by 12, 10, where's, you know, where's Tio Pedrito and singing, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so it just is a, you would have to be more specific for me to pin- pinpoint a single moment. Yeah. Well, you gave us a lot of, of really great snapshots there. Um, I guess talk, talk more about some of the, some of these traditional holidays. We're recording this near the holiday season. By the time this comes out, the holiday season here will just have passed. But um, what are some of your memories, I guess, around like Noche Buena, um, Three Kings Day, New Year's, all of that, like as a kid and then maybe as you got a little bit older, any shifts there? It is a well-known fact that we hold the longest holiday season in the world. We start sometime around Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit before that. And we actually, officially, our holiday season does not end until la, until El Día de la Virgen de la Candelaria, which is February 3rd. Mm. Uh, though most of the high part of the holidays end around Los Octavones, which is the third week of January. Mm-hmm. And so you have this entire two months, two and a half months of, of celebration, um, and so among all of those things, traditions that for me are still very present are some of them are very tied to religion, right? Um, you get up in the morning, the 12 days before Christmas, and you go to La Misa de Gallo, or which, you know, it's the, what do you call it? Uh, the rooster's mass, because by the end of mass, the roosters are awake and now they're singing. And then you do a procession to a neighbor's as you do it in your local parish, you do you know, you would go to a neighbor's house and you would have breakfast and then you would go to work. And it was it is it, one of the most painful thing to do when you're a child. And then when you grow up and mm-hmm. they sort of kind of have faded away, you miss them. Mm-hmm. Parrandas, like, mm-hmm. you know, people talk about going caroling or villancicos in Mexican traditions, you know, 
we in Puerto Rico are, you know, we, we have this, this energy, una bulla, un, you know, like we don't do anything quietly. <laughs> and so for us, Carolyn means you start at midnight, uh, you pick a place where you meet and you bring your tambores and your trompetas and your guitars. And if you're really up to date, you bring a car with a charger so you can have like a portable piano or organ. Uh, and then you wake people up. You go, you, you pick your route and you go and you sing. You sing your traditional music. And they are then in the, you know, in the kind of like to, to play around the posada type of tradition, they have to feed you. And you do that up until about four or five o'clock in the morning. The last house is the one house that will know you're coming because in that house you would have the sober, like the sobering food, right? So that's the one that you ingest before you kind of like run to work because you go to work after that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you will have sopon de pollo, which is, a, you know, or like a sopa de pollo with a very thick chicken stew mm -hmm. to kind of like fill your stomach and three cups of coffee or some hot chocolate, you know. You know, my family growing up, we we did celebrate Noche Buena at my grandmother's house. Um, she would make a full meal. Arroz con andules, pernil, chicharrones, pasteles, alcapurrias, you know, all of that. And then when my grandmother passed, my aunt took over that tradition. And then on the second day, on Christmas Day, we would go to see my other grandmother. And that day we would eat goat stew. It was a tradition in my family. Yeah, that's what we would have for Christmas Day. Was my grandfather would have slaughtered a goat a couple of days before. It would have been clean and it literally would have cooked in a stew for like a full day. Hmm. And that came obviously with tostones and uh, breadfruit or pana, and tostones de pana and you know mofongo and all of that, you know, chicharrones and all of that other stuff. New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, the same thing. We would spend New Year's Eve with my dad's side of the family, New Year's Day with my mom's side. But it was Epiphany, Three Kings Day, mm -hmm. the end of actual the the actual end of the twelve days of Christmas, right? So the, in in the in the Christian tradition, most people confuse the twelve days of Christmas with something that comes before Christmas Day. But the reality is that between Christmas Day and Epiphany is when the twelve days of Christmas happens. Mm -hmm. And in Puerto Rico, children would take you know we would save our favorite shoe box or wooden box and then on January 5th we would go out and we would cut grass and cut some other veggies and we would put them all in a box and we would put them underneath our parents bed that it was there was not a tree there was no right. and there was like yeah, there's no pine trees in a Caribbean country like you you know it was just right. and in my family you know, in the morning of, of La Vispera de Reyes, the, the day before Epiphany, we would go to my both of my grandparents' house and then we would put smaller boxes in underneath their beds and then we would come to my house and we would do the whole big box and, you know, whatever. And then on Epiphany, we would get up super early and we would crawl underneath the bed and figure out if we were worth of the same gifts of the of, of, as the child was when the wise men came to visit when the magi came to visit mm -hmm. what did the what you know were we worth the same as the lord jesus christ mm -hmm. and i say that having grown up in a you know in a christian family mm -hmm. and there was a sense of the tide of innocence of the innocence of a child 
with an ingrained tradition, you know, San Juan is our patron saint, but the three kings are really the figures that you see the most in Puerto Rico, you know, mm-hmm. and you won't see them in camels. You'll see them in horses, mm-hmm. which are very, very indigenous to the Arabic Peninsula versus camels were Northern African, you know, kind of like nomad land, desert land in, in saw, you know, in what is now known as, um, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, mm-hmm. Misrahi land in Jewish tradition, it was horses. And so mm-hmm. we think of our, the, our three kings coming in horses. And mm-hmm. so we would leave something for the horses to eat. A little bit of water. Mm-hmm. Little, you know, sort of like the same tradition that you know people use. It's, it's the offshoot as to what you leave for the reindeer. Right. And the Maja were Maja. They didn't need food. So we didn't leave cookies or, you know... We did live water. Mm-hmm. And then after that, my grandmother's, in my family in particular, my dad's mom's last name happens to be Reyes. Mm. Kings. And right. so we would go to the to La Casa de las Tres Reinas. So it was my grandmother and her, mm-hmm. and her two sisters. And they would compete mm-hmm. to see who made the best chicharrones, the best tostones. You know, and so we would go literally, their houses were one, two, three. You know, like this lot mm-hmm. of land that they had inherited from their parents, who happened to be indentured servants in the sugarcane fields mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. laid behind their houses. Like the like you know, the, growing up, they they worked the sugar fe- the sugar fields, and their parents worked mm-hmm. the sugar fields, and their parents' parents worked the sugar fields, right? In different states of mm-hmm. freedom, and and so on, and so. Uh, so we would go from Titi Jenny's to Abuela to Titi Monita's house, and we would just eat for hours. <laughs> and each house would, like, you know, they, they, all three sisters would try to do better than the other. So one would have music, and the other one would have a poetry slam. You know, then my my mom, my Abuela Adela and her and her sisters were very artistic and very passionate, and you know, and and as we grew older. And our friends knew that we would do this. It became the place that even as teenagers, we were like, nope, el 6 de enero, we are at Lisbeth's grandmother's house. And they were like all flogged there. So it was like, it was not just my family, but it was also my chosen family. Mm -hmm. Recently, I happened to have spent time with two of my oldest friends. We've known each other for 50 years. And we're talking about the things that we still remember much about. our And number one memory was sitting in the porch at my grandmother's house and running to one of the other houses to get food and coming back and trying to like make sure that we didn't lose the spot, right? Because that was the middle spot. We would get there super early so we could sit on those three chairs and do, you know, like. <laughs> and then because my grandfather was born on February 3rd or the Dia de la Virgen de la Candelaria, we would collect the Christmas trees and everything else. And then we will make a huge bonfire in honor of the, you know, La Virgen de la Candelaria. And that's how we would close our Christmas season. Hmm. That is, that is fantastic. You know, you were talking about going to your abuela's house and that's a memory that I have too. Like I would, whenever I would go to the island and abuela knew we were coming, it didn't matter what time of day we were landing. Somehow we'd get to her house. She had this, this pink house in San Juan, like 10 minutes from the airport and um, it was right across the street from where my mom went to school and, and all this. And we would we would go there and she just always had food. 
it, it didn't it didn't matter uh, what what time what time of day or anything like that. And weirdly, I I only have like two times that I spent Christmas in Puerto Rico. One was when I was in middle school, and I don't remember like a lot of the typical Christmas stuff that happened there. Uh, but then the most recent time I went was, I think it was, yeah, 2019. And so it was uh, after, like a couple years after Hurricane mm-hmm. Maria. And we did we did the whole Noche Buena thing. My mom and I, we flew in. We got to San Juan at like five o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve. And then we had like Noche Buena, um, you know, so it, it was just like, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but it was, I mean, it was fantastic. It was, it was really fun, but there also definitely was this, um, this sort of like mutedness that would like, sometimes it would get a little bit quiet and people would start like giving snippets of memories about the hurricane. And I, you just like, for a moment, I saw people just kind of stare out into space for a second. And then like, it was this really, it was interesting to, to just sort of see that ebb and flow yeah. of, you know, what they were feeling, what they were going through. The last Christmas I spent in Puerto Rico was January of 18th, was a year after the hurricane. And, you know, landing, one of the observations my wife and I made was that you could still see so many blue tarps, you know, as you were landing. Mm-hmm. Like, the usually the plane comes in somewhere around Arecibo and then it makes left turn and then flies over, right, mm-hmm. in their descent. And... It was so heartbreaking because we knew, mm-hmm. we knew that this would be a very different Christmas. My mm-hmm. grand, you know, my parents' backyard was still destroyed. Mm-hmm. And in even in the, in the face of all of that, and I had left Puerto Rico uh, on the last plane before the hurricane struck. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and, and I have to tell you, it was probably most, the most harrowing ascent I have ever had in a plane. Because we we caught the edge of the hurricane and and the plane felt very much like a kite on the wind. Mm. So I knew the strength of, even if it was for a second, of what was to come. Mm -hmm. And I knew my mother had sent me away because I had been there for Irma. Mm -hmm. Because in her own words, somebody needs to know where the bodies will lie should something happen to us and you're the one who can leave. Mm. So we're going to send you. Mm. So coming back for the holidays in Puerto Rico after the hurricane was both soothing and devastating. And it's so true, Mm. right? Like you would, like there was music and there was fun and there Mm. was jokes. And then you heard the small circles of people talking and invariably the, the conversation would turn to, Uh, Mm -hmm. and when the water was running through the house and we and the windows were gone or you know like we hid in the bathroom as this as the roof just flew away um Mm -hmm. and thank god we're here thank god we're here to Mm -hmm. to to be with family thank god we're here to hug you to touch you we don't know how but we made it right i guess and 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 people will stare like there would be a rustle of wind and all of a sudden it would stop. There was just like this innate mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder kind of memory that even the smallest of, of movements created this reaction in people's body and you could feel the silence fall through. Mm-hmm. And then they would look at each other. It's like, everybody, okay, you're good, you're good, you're good. 
okay, let's go. And then it was like right. the resiliency right. of the people of Puerto Rico, either because they were hiding their feelings or because they were processing their feelings or whatever the reason is like, we are default is to begin joking, to begin dancing, to begin exercising the pain in whichever way we find healthily or unhealthily. Mm-hmm. And yet it was those moments that made some of the traditions come back because there was nothing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all you had to, all you could do is go back to those traditions of getting the family together, of having, you know, which, which, which had taken a nosedive because mm-hmm. of the white colonial settler, settler, you know, ideology that, that Puerto Rico suffers as a, as a so-called territory, really colony of the U.S. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the juxtaposition of, of, of those memories with the realities of the people who are still in recovery. It's, it's very strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this term Latinx, um, what, what is your experience of this term? Is it something that you, you know, claim readily? Is it something you struggle with? Is it something that is in between? Cause it is a pretty new term. And, you know, I like to unpack that with, you know, everybody who comes on sort of what their individual sense of that is. So the first time I experienced the term Latinx uh, was not in this country. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's like something that it, that it has to be made very clear to people that that term actually, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a lot of blogs and there's a lot of people writing and, you know, this is just another United Stadionism of like, blah, blah, blah. Right. Look, mofos. The term did not originate here. This is right. not your shit. This was Latin American feminist trying to get rid of a patriarchal use of a language that for centuries since Cervantes has been oppressing women by the elimination of our presence within the neutral language. Mm-hmm. So I heard it first in America Latina, in Mexico, in Argentina, in Chile. Is it a common term? No. Do we pronounce it correctly? Also, no. The actual pronunciation is Latine, which is mm-hmm. why as, as we move forward with this terminology, you will start seeing the X actually dropped and an E being used. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, in Spanish, you follow pronunciation so much, right? Like what you see is what you read. And so Latinx is a very difficult term to pronounce. And so... Even even the progressive ultra radical movements, you know, feminist anti patriarchal movements in America Latina are now deferring to Latine, uh, using mm-hmm. the E as, instead of an O to neutralize language. The excuse mm-hmm. that you know I will always be a purist and adhere to the Royal Academy of the Spanish Language by the most progressive of Latinx people. Is an insult to their own politics. Mm. So that should tell you exactly where I stand on the term. <laughs> is it the term that will stick? Who knows? Is it one that I approve of? Absolutely. Anything that anything that validates my existence as a cis woman in a language that is dear is my mother tongue. Is what I is what I default to. You know, it's like look, I mm-hmm. if you know if I hit my toe on the and the door, I'm not going to say fuck. That's not my default. My default is like, puñeta coño me duele, right? Like there's you know, this feeling <laughs> that you got. Yeah. So you have to consciously understand, one, 
what the default of this, uh, you know, of an academy that refuses, refuses to recognize us. Because this idea mm-hmm. that, well, we have a neutral is, oh, no, we don't. Mm-hmm. Right. The neutral is just like in religion, a God that is supposed to be male, a God that is supposed to be, you know, to, to control women, a God that is like, you control, you use language to control people. And what we feminists, you know, particularly third wave feminists in America Latina are saying is that time has come and gone. We will find a solution to this. We will experiment with language. And if the Oxford Dictionary can admit it, that in, you know, or the American press or AP or Rutgers can mm-hmm. admit to using the day as a, as a singular, so can we begin using language that neutralizes our lives and recognizes the existence of women versus defaulting to a male patriarchal oppressive language that erases our existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very, very well said. I, you know, I completely agree with with all of that. And and I mean, yeah, like I I do see Latine being used more and more. That or that is is really coming about. And one thing that I learned recently is that apparently with screen readers, so people who you know need to use accessibility technology to read things online, Latine is much more friendlier to the screen readers than. Latinx. And so that like that's a new piece of information I just got like, I don't know, a few days ago. So I think that's that's really interesting. And I mean, I mean, me personally, I I'm fine with both of those terms and even using them interchangeably, because to me, like language is only worth, you know, the people who are actually living and using it. And so it evolves and is alive just like people are. And it shouldn't be constraining people. It, it should change with the way that people use it. And so, so yeah. And, like and I'm, think, and think you know, about it this way, for the sake of historical perspective. Mm-hmm. Both English and Spanish were the language of the peasants. Latin, right? Greek mm-hmm. were the language of the elites. Mm-hmm. And in England... The reason why English is so fucked up as to as I was written is because they made up their spelling. <laughs> there was no grammar. There was no spelling up until at some point the people realized that this was the way in which people were communicating and therefore they formalized it. The first novel, the first piece of writing in, in, in Spanish was Cervantes Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and much of what he wrote, he wrote because it was how he heard it in the streets. Again, the language of the elites, Isabel and Ferdinand did not speak Spanish. They spoke Latin, mm-hmm. right? They spoke Spanish with, you know, in terms of the, the peasantry of it all. But when it came down to the courts, you know, to the quindom, to the whatever, Spanish was not their language. And so the day that, and because of all those things happen, and Latin refused to evolve, Latin is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Greek, with the exception of Greece, is pretty much dead. Right. Unless you're a New Testament scholar. Yeah, and even you know? then, <laughs> as somebody who who's, you know, I mean, I've had to learn Greek, some Greek for, for New Testament yeah. stuff, you know, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like, 
most scholars these days only use it if they're going to do profound studies of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. your common theologian learns it just in order for us to be able to write about scripture um, and contest translations from the Aramaic to the to the Latin to the Greek back to the Latin back to whatever language you know mm-hmm. used after that. So my answer to all of these people are that if you dare use they in English and you're going to contest the E or the X in Spanish, mm-hmm. you have some thinking to do because mm-hmm. there those two things are not that far from one another, mm-hmm. and. Grammarly correct things are but the realm of the elites that refuse to understand the ways in which we are recognized, in which we communicate, in which in we, we live and lean into one another to be seen by one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this conversation and this terminology moves forward. Because on the one hand, I feel like in my bubble of people that I know, it's well known where these terms Latinx and Latina come from and and sort of what their purpose Mm -hmm. is. But it seems like there is this wider narrative that's going on that's being pushed that's saying that, like we were saying before, that this is white liberal academic made up stuff that's now, you know, being pushed out there to to destroy span like the but this is a narrative that is gaining a lot of traction and and it's like I, I'll give you that really I'll give you even something more to uh, you know I probably about a long time ago I was doing work in in the agricultural pathway in the south right so people arrive in Texas and then they move north either towards the meatpacking plants in the plains, North Nebraska, you know, Montana, North, uh, you know, South Dakota, or to the east. And so I happened to be working with meatpacking plants in North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, at a time where the majority of the population within the within the factories, within the processing plants, were doing a shift from black to Latinos. Mm-hmm. And the assumption that I that I was sent there because the assumption that the white elite made was that all of these people were coming from Mexico or Guatemala, whatever, and therefore they spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. I will tell you about 60% of the people, if not more, learned English before they learned Spanish because mm-hmm. they spoke indigenous languages. They did not speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Spanish was the language of the colonizer, of the elite, mm-hmm. of the Ladino. Mm-hmm. And so they spoke, you know, Quechua, they spoke any of the indigenous language of, of the central, you know, um, and northern regions of, of the Americas. They were not the language they used every day. So they got mm-hmm. here um, and you hear in their accent, like those who speak Spanish, you will hear in the way in which they speak because their mouth moves very different. When you hear them speaking mm-hmm. to one another in their language, you see the ease by which their tongue moves and how mm-hmm. forced it is for them to speak either Spanish or English mm-hmm. because those things are happening, right? And so right. evolution and language and the ways in which we communicate with one another are in constant motion. And we, we need to recognize that. We need to honor that. And they cannot go from there. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, we could... That's such an interesting topic too. And, and it's so important because 
this might be like the maybe one of the deepest levels of this conversation around this term that I've gotten to have on this podcast. This is really important, like nuance and and history to understand, because sometimes even it might feel like even for those of us who, you know, are really fine with using these terms and we're very supportive of, of these terms, sometimes it's hard to figure out, like, how can we keep defending its usage against these loud voices that want to keep invalidating it and, and keep and keep spreading it to the point where like I I'm starting I've started to see some, you know, like well-meaning, well-meaning white, you know, not not in our community, you know, allies being like, oh, you shouldn't loot you shouldn't use Latinx because it's actually the Latino like they're they're well, starting I, I, to is, is the, are the majority of Latin uh, Latinx people in this country gonna use that no, for them the term is is Hispano. Somos Hispanos, which is all that has its own connotation around white civil colonialism, yeah. right? Like I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's also why they will translate that as well, I'm Hispanic, not understanding mm-hmm. that those two terms are not in the translations of one another, but that there is an entire political history as to why Hispano all of a sudden became that. And and to be honest, even Latini as a whole mm-hmm. concept is problematic because it recognizes the level to which the you know we have we were indoctrinated into a colonial state mm-hmm. and so spare me the pity about you know the purity of the language when it is absolutely totally the language of the colonizer and as such we should be able to manipulate it to serve our purposes and not coalesce to a yeah. continued oppression of our expression mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is like, if I'm standing in front of somebody and they want to be called Latino, I'm going to call them Latino, right? If I'm standing in front of somebody and they want to be called Hispanic, then that person's Hispanic. And that's what I, that's how I'm going to call them. Because at the very I'm going to make a face, but I'll use the language they want. Right, right. You know, I, and it should be, it should be simple enough to say, okay, well, if you can deal with it with those terms, you can deal it with, with it in these these uh, newer expressions of, of terminology as well. Yeah. And I think the biggest issue is not so much about how we speak it as much as how we write it. And, and the fact that people are lazy enough not to have to change the way in which they their muscle memory is around writing, right? I mean, like as somebody who translates mm-hmm. stuff, not from English to Spanish, but from Spanish to gender neutral, it's mm-hmm. a muscle memory. I, I miss mm-hmm. stuff. Is, mm-hmm. Do I translate this one? Do I not? Like what, you know, but... Anyway, I'm sure that is not the only question you had, and we could definitely talk about this for a long time <laughs> and translate it into other things. But, you know, I'm, I'm right. curious what else you wanted to know today. Yeah, well, let's get into your experiences with spirituality and religion and especially how they intersect with your identity, um, whatever that, that means to you, uh, identity that can be as whatever direction you, you want to take that in. Um, we were touching on it a little bit with some of the holidays and things like that, but uh, like in your own personal identity, what is, how does religion cross over with that? Uh, I, you know, so as a piece of background, I, I, you know, there are three pieces of background that I lean on or lean into when talking about my spiritual journey. One is I come from a Roman apostolic Catholic family, who also happened to be a, a, a cauldron of santeros and espiritistas and, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
And so I, I am the product of a very, of two very strong lines. One, in one side of my family, they were very strong spiritistas, and the other one, they were very strong Santeros. And um, I, you know, me and my brother were supposed to kind of be that kind of like thing that united those two lines. And I was asked to start training to become a, you know, a Santera priestess and, and, and a spiritista. Mm-hmm. Uh, medium very young uh, and mm. around my I think it was my teenage year so I was like I do not have the patience for this and it was kind of like that moment in which you're able to say no like yeah no I came out you know in my late teens and you know at a time where the Catholic Church was very much dominated by a total rejection of, of Vatican II even if our social work and principles were very ingrained in, in our lives and so I actually walked away from religion for a long time. Mm-hmm. I am the product of 16 years of Catholic education up until my college degree. I, you know, but once once I was done with that piece of my life, I was like, I I would almost say that I definitely was an agnostic and I almost dabble in atheism. But one thing that was always very true is that in in, in times of need, I defaulted to my spiritual strengths. I defaulted to the desire of going to to a church and just sort of kind of like sitting and meditating and, and just taking a deep breath and have a conversation with this invisible being. Um, there's a very famous German philosopher whose name at the moment escapes me, who's in essence... I won't quote him because I don't know the full quote, but in essence, he used to say that God is the unexplainable to be able to explain the unexplainable. Hmm. (laughs) And, you know, that's very true. When in a moment of pain, when you don't exactly understand what's going on, you will default to those things that you think can explain it. Mm -hmm. And so I justified my need for spiritual moment and in those times of pain and elation by leaning into that and then about i'm gonna say close to 20 years now ago a friend asked me to help them with a publication a religious publication it was a guide for uh, latinx families at the intersection of sexual orientation gender gender identity ethnicity Mm-hmm. familia right mm-hmm. in in religion and i read it and i realized that you know i i know that this is not true more and more this this might be a not as an accurate statement but most latinx families are not born protestants mm-hmm. they're actually born catholics and then they leave the catholic church for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. um and this guide was very much written by somebody who was a born Protestant. And so it left an entire swath of people out. And the other thing that it lacked was a personal connection. Um, as you know, we we relate to one another by, by conversation, by comunidad, by in conjunto, right? Mm-hmm. All of those terms that we used to say we, that we you know, we, we, we live in relationship with. Mm -hmm. And so I raised that after I read it and, you know, they asked me to come back and help them personalize. So I ended up interviewing like some, somewhere around 37 people 
who had been, you know, people of faith, deep faith, mm -hmm. who had gone through both a separation of spirit and a reconciliation with spirit. And in some cases, mm -hmm. their reconciliation meant they no longer believe in God. And some, in many others, was they were able to actually find the support within their own families to continue to live a spiritual, faithful life. Mm -hmm. There are two things I realized in that in that journey. The first one was that I was indeed still very much a person of faith. And I had sugar-coated it. I had changed it. There was many things I had done with that. But at the end of the day, I was a person of deep spiritual faith. That the Catholic Church was actually three things. It was the hierarchy of the Vatican, the middle management of the parish priest, and the people of the mm -hmm. pews. The first two layers sort of kind of rejected me and made my life miserable. Mm -hmm. The third layer, my siblings in the pews, most of them loved me and understood that I had a place in that pew. Mm -hmm. And so though I did the whole cafeteria shopping, kind of like I went to the Christianity buffet and I tasted this and mm -hmm. I did that and whatever, I kept coming back to the fact that I am in essence a Catholic. And it doesn't matter if I decide to practice my faith in another church or another denomination, right? I have very close ties with the UCC. I have very close ties mm -hmm. with the Lutheran church. Mostly, you know, these days, the UCC. There are still high holidays in a Catholic church that I enjoy. Um, mm -hmm. That I enjoy the Catholic version of that celebration. Not to say that my, that, you know, the UCC or the DOC or Disciples of Christ or the United Church of Christ or any mm -hmm. of them do not celebrate those days. It's the version mm -hmm. that, that is celebrated within the, the, the Catholic denomination that I happen to enjoy because it's very close to me. Mm -hmm. You know, like I remember going to a church here in the first time that I went to St. Camilla's here in the Metro DC area. And I walked in and I saw the music section getting ready. And somebody, mm -hmm. like two of the people just kind of like put up their trumpets and I was like, I'm home. That's it. I'm here. <laughs> Right, a bunch of Latino people with like, you know, la guitarra, las trompetas, you know, they had the drum section and the music was not very calm and lovely and like, we praise the Lord. No, no, this was like music, right? Like music you wanted to not just praise Christ about, but that you wanted to dance to in celebration of. And it was a liturgical dance with the fake wings and the whatever things people use. <laughs> And so it also became the moment in which I had to reconsider my call. Mm -hmm. And it's how I ended up in seminary. And so I, you know, I went back to, you know, went back to school finally and got my MDiv. And now I'm finishing my doctorate in ministry. And will I ever be an ordained person of faith? Not sure. Um, but I do carry the ministry of justice. And that is one thing that I do every day. And I do that because I know that the type of religion that I practice and believe in is one that is explicit about the role of justice. So much so that is not to cleanse Jesus's image because, you know, he could he had angry moments and he, you know, he, he wasn't perfect because he, yes, he was the child. Yes, he was the child of God, but he was also the child of human. And as humans, we make mistakes and we are tempted. 
and we get angry and we send people away and we flip tables at the temple and, you know, do all of those things and like that a perfect person is not supposed to do. And yet here he is in the word telling us, no, he got pissed. They were corrupt in his faith because he wasn't Christian. He was Jewish and, Mm -hmm. and people were abusing the temple and therefore he, he let people know he was pissed. His father didn't like this. What people thought about that, but at that point about him, yeah, you know, I'm not sure even the the gospels are correct about that. If I was in that situation, I think that there would be a lot of swearing in Arabic uh, or in Hebrew, whatever, right? And so, mm-hmm. but for me as a Latina, that journey is important because it gives me the tools I need to talk to others about what does it look like for me to be a Latin, you know, a Latina butch dyke who is a deep mm-hmm. person of faith and who understands that it is not God who has rejected me, but it is the fear of humans who have, mm-hmm. you know, that you cannot preach about accepting the other and reject my immigrant status, even if I was given citizenship by default. Because when I walk down the street to the average bigot, it doesn't matter that I have papers. And I put that in huge mm-hmm. quotation marks. Yeah. To them, we're all undocumented, filthy, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter that I am a proud woman that happens to not to fit your idea of what a woman should look like. Because I dress and, and have male, you know, send male of center qualities that make me different than what you think a woman should look like. Mm -hmm. And that in all of the wisdom of God, I was given the ability to love women the same way that I love myself and to form like, you know, emotional, emotional, psychological and romantic relationship with women that are equal and as respected as any other form of love you will encounter. Mm -hmm. And for me, women, it's, it, you know, how, like for me, women is, is, is a gender identity that, is the identity you uh, you arrive at, whatever journey you talk to that, mm. right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, I am not emotionally, psychologically, romantically inclined to form relationships with people who identify as males. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and so that those three words plus a deep belief in the justice that Christians are so strongly beholden by. Mm-hmm. Is my journey in spirituality? Is my it's, it's you know it's, it's where am I today? I don't think it's where I arrived because I don't think I've yet arrived. Um, mm-hmm. But it is definitely a high point of where I'm at. And I don't know if that answered your question exactly, but it it answered the question very very beautifully. And you know, it just is yet another example of the beautiful ways that marginalized people just make Christianity come alive in these really extremely nuanced ways and these winding journeys that a lot of us have from the faith and maybe back toward it, but like to the left or to, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different, like not quite the, not quite what we were given, but ways that we end up reclaiming it. It's just a different level of, of richness, the different experiences that I've had among queer people of faith, among, uh, other folks with Encuentros Latinx and and the other like it's a different energy I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before when I go to our like services and things that we'll have with Encuentros Latinx that hits a different spiritual like need that 
I in myself that is very like still underfed. Um, even as much as I love my church that I regularly go to and I can, you know, I, I can get a lot out of that and, you know, I can feel really fulfilled doing that. It's just, it's, it's different. And then same when I, when I go do, um, when I've gone to like open and affirming ONA stuff in, in the past, uh, there's just something about an entire sanctuary full of queer people uh, doing worship that is just a different energy. D- different energy than uh, than anything else. Probably the most interesting mass I've ever gone to happen at a at a organization who who serves queer Catholics, and they have mm-hmm. a leather mass usually during their conference. Mm-hmm. And what a thing of beauty was to see these people mm-hmm. in their full regalia mm-hmm. uh, that is so often rejected even by the queer community. Mm-hmm. celebrating yeah. their spirituality and their faith and feeding their mm-hmm. souls mm-hmm. in ways in which no other space out there could do. Right. Because it was, a, it was a mass for them, with them, and by them. You know, the, the reality is that the, 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 it was the one and only time I have actually seen a priest in leather. Uh, and he was a priest. And I was like, mm-hmm. literally, my mouth hit the floor. And I was just like, well, what? Because <laughs> uh, you just, you know, there's just all these prejudices you carry, stereotypes you carry in your right. brain. And so, but yeah. Yeah. So with all of this nuance and, and rich spirituality that's feeding you, you mentioned before that you're you're getting your MDiv. What is some of the other work that you're doing? Because I know you're doing a ton of stuff. So I just love to hear about advocacy work, you know, whatever, everything that, that you do, uh, give us a, a nice rundown of that. So let me just for the record say that I finished my MDiv. I'm actually getting my doctorate in ministry. Okay. Yeah. Because I just have to validate the, the trouble and the sweat and the tears, <laughs> not because you said it, I, I guess it's, you know, but so I'm currently the organizing director for an organization called Jewish Voice for Peace, which is a little bit, you know, like little shocking as, as you and I are talking about all these Christians. So it's like, what the hell is a Christian doing directing, you know, organizing in a Jewish organization? And what I would say to you is like, one, I am married to an Arab Jew mm-hmm. and somebody who's very clearly proud of, you know, of both, you know, all of that, that means and encompasses. Uh, we live mm-hmm. in a, we live in a Puerto Rican culturally, in many ways, Jewish household. Mm-hmm. And so the idea uh, of working towards the liberation of Palestine and the end of Israeli apartheid is incredibly important mm-hmm. to work with my fellow Christians against Christian Zionism and the idea that we must mm-hmm. preserve Israel simply because it's the place where the Christ will return. We don't know where Christ is going to return to. For that matter, you know, he's already here and it might be a she. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, or a trans person. We don't know. Like you're mm-hmm. making all these assumptions, you know. But at the end of the day, what what I would say the most about all the work that I do, be it when I worked at, you know, as as director of faith partnership and training, or you know, when I'm going to sit on a board of the UCC or any other denomination or any of this other stuff that I do, I do it for one reason and one reason only, and that is that. My philosophy of life, my philosophy of justice is one that is deeply rooted in the idea that I follow a man that believed that everybody had the freedom to honor God 
and that at the core of all of what we read in a book that can be used as a tool of hate, but is really meant to be an instrument of love, means that we engage in conversations. We engage in dialogue about difference. We create a world in which we are just to one another. Uh, that is justice for all, not just for us. Mm-hmm. And that he sacrificed his life so that we could do all of those things. Be it that, you know, that everything else that happened at the center of Christianity in whichever denomination you want to talk about is this idea of a simple son of God and a carpenter, because God had to, you know, Jesus had two dads, who was born to a young woman, forced to marry because of society, and who had both the arrogance of the society at the time. Woman, leave me alone. It is not my time. He told his mother and his mother said, yeah, no, you don't talk to me like that. Just go, just go make sure that water is wine, right? <laughs> or at least that's my interpretation of the verse. <laughs> but time and time and time again, took care of the needy, told the elites that they were already rejected because they had oppressed and made all the people suffer. And that the victims of their oppression and their suppression were those who needed help so that they too could find their way to live dignified lives. So be it that I, in the time when I was a labor organizer or a community organizer or a queer organizer or whatever role I've taken in this world that we call the justice warrior, you know, movement, I do so because my faith and my spirituality calls me to follow this person who I believed had the right thinking about what a world in which we were all equal would look like and that he was willing to sacrifice everything to make sure that that happened. Very, very well said. Um, And so that, you know, leads into some of the wrap up questions. Um, Where can we keep up with just some of these organizations, you know, people listening, maybe they're interested in, in getting involved in some of this work. And so, where can people find these different justice organizations that maybe you've been a part of or anything that you want to give a shout out to? Well, obviously, you know, we, we're a podcast for Encuentros Latinx, when, you know, something that is very dear and close to my heart. Um, if you have nothing to do tomorrow, we're having our Posadas Navideñas. So um, go look at Encuentros Latino, you know, Latinx. We have a page on Facebook, and I can't remember the other places where it's at, but come listen to some songs and some music and, you know, some villancicos. Not sure if there's going to be some parranda music, but there was last year, so you can find us there, and you can find some activities there. Uh, I currently work at Jewish Voice for Peace, and so you can find us at jewishvoiceforpeace.org if you believe that Israeli apartheid and the liberation of the Palestinian people is important to you as as a Christian ally. And if you happen to be Jewish and be pro-Palestinian and understand that there is a world where we can live beyond Zionism and apartheid, also join us in that, you know, in that endeavor. And look for smaller, queer, faithful organizations around you. If there's a ministry in your church, join it. The UCC, as well as other denominations, have such, you know, such spaces 
continue the work again, ucc.org, and then go through the myriad of offerings that the UCC has, and there's many. The Universalist, the Unitary Universalist Association of, you know, the UUA.org, who also we with whom we partner in many ways. MCC or the Metropolitan Community Churches with whom we partner in many ways. These are all organizations that I work with for or around that, you know, in which we engage in not just the, what many organizations in the justice movement will call rent a color, but to actual full true engagement of what it means for us to speak our truth with our own about the ways in which we can continue to create a world that uh, that strives to be the world in which the founder of, I'm not sure Paul would agree with this, but at least the precursor to Paul, who's the founder of Christianity, would believe it was the right thing to do. And so you can reach me at Lisbeth at Jewish Voices for Peace, uh, .org or Lisbeth Melendez Rivera at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and sharing your your journey and all of your very, very detailed and fascinating thoughts on all sorts of subject matters. It was my pleasure and my blessing to be here with you tonight. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.